Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Christopher Hitchens wrote in an introduction to Animal Farm in 1984, on the occasion of what would have been George Orwell's 100th year, while the drive to power and corruption and cruelty is certainly latent in human beings, the instinct for liberty is innate as well. This battle takes place within ourselves as well as in the world we inhabit, and these books are weapons of self-respect as well as of self-defense. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured, that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. What is dystopia? What has dystopia to do with language? What has dystopia to do with memory? Why should Christians read dystopia? Joining us today on the Wittenberg Hour is Reverend Larry Bean. Pastor Bean serves as Paideia 4 teacher and chaplain at Wittenberg Academy. Pastor Bean, welcome back. Thank you, Jocelyn. It's always good to be with you. Pastor Bean, it's always good to define our terms. So let us begin with that. What is dystopia? And what are some examples of dystopian literature? Well, let me start with some examples and then and then talk about what it is. Um, I think the best known examples of dystopia are uh, George Orwell's novels 1984 and Animal Farm, and also um, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, uh, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. Um, also, other books and, and even movies, you know, like The Hunger Games, which I've not read or seen, by the way. Um, there's a movie called They Live, which is sort of a spoofy sci-fi movie, but I would consider that also dystopia. Then you have, you know, movies like Mad Max and Terminator. Uh, there's a really, really good one called The Book of Eli. Um, I would also include Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged in, uh, in the general uh, genre of dystopia as well. So it's, it's a pretty broad category. But what uh, as for what it is, um, the word itself is a play on utopia. Of course, uh, utopia is sort of a an idealized future, a Pollyanna world where everything is perfect. And so dystopia is really just the opposite. In, um, in dystopia, you see a future that is dreary, oppressive, uh, brutal, um, and, and the overwhelming theme is a loss of freedom, uh, loss of human liberty, the loss of human dignity, uh, the loss of, uh, of reason is uh, quite often a theme. So it's, but it's not like the genre of horror, um, as a lot of times I think horror books and movies are really just sort of gratuitous reveling in uh, cruelty and fear and torture and all of that sort of dark themes. But uh, dystopia actually has a point. It's, it's really a thought experiment. Um, you can kind of think of it like Marley warning Scrooge uh, what the picture of the future is going to look like unless you grab hold of the steering wheel now and turn it. And, um, and, and in many cases, when you, when you look back at dystopian writers of the past, they were really spot on about the direction we've headed, you know, as a society, or even in some cases, it almost seems like they were prophetic. Yeah, that propheticness seems to have struck me 
uh, as as recently I read uh, well this this past academic year I read Animal Farm and then I just recently read 1984 and uh, Brave New World and that was one of the things that really struck me was this that it, it just seemed like wow they just nailed it <laughs> you know when they yeah. when they um uh gave us the narrative the story that is contained in in these novels and it's interesting though because it, it seems like the the content of these novels could have applied at different times through history. I mean, they were they were writing in a particular context, and so certainly that that must have influenced the way that they were thinking and and what and why they were writing. Um, but it's just interesting to ponder how applicable what they say. You know, different epics could have read these same works and said, oh, they they totally nailed it. D- does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, that's the same impression I get when I read these uh, these dystopia. The, it, it, it's, it sends chills up your spine sometimes. Um, so, uh, I know my, uh, uh, my particular students in Paideia 4, I mean, they were just sort of laughing in a sense because they, you know, this is like reading, this is like watching the internet in real time. You know, reading, right. you know, yeah. reading these books and, you know, and it, it's so true. And, and, you know, I, and I think really, if you think about it, what dystopia is, this is why I think it's so powerful. Um, it's, it's sort of a novelized form or, you know, a storytelling form of where you have sort of eggheaded scholars, you know, analyzing trends in society, whether it's, you know, literature or art or, or government or law or whatever. And so they analyze all of these things and they sort of make trend, they, they look at the trends and they sort of make predictions about the future. Like, and one great example of this, it's not dystopia, it's a prose work, but it's it's a, a very important work, although I, th- I think a lot of people have never heard of it. It's um, a book written in, I think it was published in 1950 by a, a guy named Chad Walsh. He was an Episcopal priest, but he was, his main work was a, uh, he was a uh, college professor, professor of American literature. And he wrote this book in 1950 called uh, Christians of the 21st, or it's called Early Christians of the 21st Century. And it's a remarkable book because he basically, from his viewpoint, just after the end of World War II, he's looking at he's he's looking at art and music and literature, and he's he's thinking what's what Christianity and how it interacts with the world is going to look like in the 21st century. That's where we are now, and it is really like it's 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 chilling to read it. I mean, it's remarkable. He he got some things wrong, but most of what he got was correct. And in fact, he uses the word postmodernism. If you look up the word postmodernism, it only entered the English lexicon in like 1947. And he wrote the, he wrote this book in 48 or 49. And he gets into, you know, postmodernism in, in, in the, in written literature, in the arts and, and how it would affect 21st century Christians. And it's just amazing. I mean, it would be really interesting had, um, Dr. Walsh taken his his um, his prose and turned it into a novel. It would have been a form of dystopia, and that's really what what we see in these in these great dystopic novels. Is um, 
you're, you're taking uh, these sort of uh, analyses of where society is headed, where government is headed, where where our human relations are headed, where religion is headed, and, and projecting into the future, but using the power of narrative and storytelling to communicate it. And it's just, it is a really magnificent genre that I think is, it, it's important. It's, these are important works for people to read. Now, there's this idea of hard totalitarianism and soft totalitarianism. And we see those uh, uh, displayed in different ways in in dystopia. I mean, totalitarianism is kind of this this overarching umbrella that that encompasses um, d- dystopian novels. And I've, I've heard it said that 1984 is a, a really good example of hard totalitarianism, whereas Brave New World is a really good example of soft totalitarianism. Can you speak to that? Just a bit. Yeah, I think you're spot on. Um, you know, in, we, in our two kingdoms uh, doctrine or uh, way of looking at at the world, how God governs this world, we have, you know, the the kingdom of the right, of course, is the church and the gospel, and the kingdom of the left, we usually say it's government, but that's really an oversimplification. The kingdom of the left is not just the state, but also society. Um, and so um, we have norms imposed upon us socially in a soft way, and we also have laws imposed upon us in a hard way by authorities, by the state, and what have you. And dystopia is such a flexible genre that it deals with both. And, and I think you're, you're spot on about 1984. I mean, 1984 is a brutal worldwide super state, you know, with the, the, the vision of man's future is a boot stamping on the face of a man forever. And this is carried out by a hierarchical pyramid of party members. And at the top is the big brother, the, the world dictator. And, and this is, so that's, that's a very hard totalitarian, totalitarianism. You know, people are just forced into conformity by brute force by torture by um, propaganda you know by by hard you know hard means that are imposed upon them but brave new world you're right instead of um, instead of the main um, compelling force being pain it's actually pleasure so you have instead of the stick you have the uh, the, the planners of the world using the carrot and it's a very different thing. Um, another twist is the book Fahrenheit 451, in which, um, you know, it's, it's not that the state is coming down and outlawing books and forcibly ripping books out of people's arms. You know, it, that's not really the theme. The theme is that people just quit reading. Um, they lost their interest in books. Books are no longer relevant. In fact, what are people doing? They're watching huge flat screen televisions with reality shows on them and it's rotting their brain and it's destroying society and and think about this um bradbury wrote this book in 1953 when a a tv was like a little five inch circle on a you know a cathode ray tube it was black and white with kind of a slow scan to it. It wasn't high def by any means. And there were no such things as reality shows. But, you know, this this man was able to project in his mind through a, 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 a sort of a mental experiment, 
you know, what's going to happen? Technology, the TVs are not always going to be a little five, you know, five inch picture, grainy black and white picture. What happens when they become high definition, realistic? What happens when they're the size of your entire wall and it's like looking into a window? What happens when you have this visual stimulation? Are people going to quit reading? I mean, you can you can almost see his thought pattern by by looking at some some embryonic technology like television, and and determining what's going to happen fifty years in the future. And he was he was brilliantly spot on. And in that case, you know, in in Fahrenheit four fifty one, it's a soft totalitarianism. It's a social totalitarianism rather than a, a brutal you know a dictatorship from above um, uh, stamping out the idea of reading. It's the people don't want to read anymore at all because they've been lured by uh, a, a different form of mental stimulation. So it's, it's, you find lots and lots of, you know, de- it, it's a very wide uh, genre. It's not just all about, you know, a, a wicked state and, you know, heroic dissidents. It's, it's a lot more complex and nuanced as, as you read various works of dystopia. Yeah, and as as I've been reading recently, and and way back in the day, I used to teach Fahrenheit 451, and it was it was one of my favorite things to teach because there was that challenge of, are we living this? Are we going to live this? Yeah, you know, I mean, this was you know 15 years ago, so you think about how much things have changed within you know that that 15 year time span but at the same time i currently teach plato's republic and i would i could argue that to a certain extent um even though uh you know socrates and his colleagues are 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 pondering kind of the utopia side of things i think we could make an argument for the fact that plato's republic at least portions of it are certainly dystopic. Do you think we could go there? Hey, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, these these writers, the the dystopia, and and you know, really, I think most dystopia um, as we know it today began in the 19th century, really after the advent of Marxism. And you see the growth of the super state of the of the of the big nation state that subsumes all of life. We see this genre mainly coming into its own in the 19th and 20th centuries. You know, with the growth, of course, with fascism, Nazism, uh, communism, and uh, and and the like. But you know, clearly the the roots for political and economic and philosophical thought. Uh, are, are are rooted in firmly in the past, uh, of, uh, and absolutely, I think you're I think you're correct. And you know the uh, the the republic in a, in a sense is almost kind of a, a utopia a kind of uh, kind of um, uh, approach to uh, philosophical writing. And and of course, if the, if the you know the future is not always going to be rosy, and that the opposite side of the coin is the dystopia. So it's certainly the 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 roots of this genre. Uh, run throughout like a thread. They run throughout the entire course of uh, of Western civilization. You you see dystopias in the Bible, of course. You know, in, in Jesus's parables, are projections of uh, their thought experiments. They're fictionalized thought experiments of of what happens when somebody rejects uh, the word of God. 
what happens when a society moves away from the commandments or individuals? And 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 so this is this is you know maybe you could argue it's common to all literature, uh, but but I think uh, it I think dystopia as an art reaches its full flower in the 20th century, and it's and of course it's still going on. There's a lot of uh, this type of literature is very popular and continues to be written today. Yeah, and I think that there is today, especially in our current context, and like I said, you know, I think different epics could uh, kind of say, oh, they nailed it, you know, for, for their current time. But it seems like our current context is even more so yeah they nailed it <laughs> in terms yeah. of in terms of what we're living and and sometimes it's you know like you were saying before it's it's like a it, instead of watching the news we could just read 1984 <laughs> right. and go oh yeah yeah okay well i'll tune in next you know for the next page to find out what's going on tomorrow <laughs> it's like the uh, it's like the meme that says make orwell fiction again right 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 <laughs> yeah oh man how true so with with all of this it seems there are some themes that that run through dystopia. And I, I want to kind of dig into some of these themes d- during our, our time together. I'm thinking particularly about Fahrenheit 451, 1984, and Animal Farm. But those are just, you know, three of probably many examples. And there's this strong theme of language. Language is controlled and language is destroyed by various means you know as you pointed out sometimes the people just lost interest uh sometimes like in 1984 there's there's very concerted effort to destroy language to rewrite um history we'll get to that in a moment but it 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 seems that language is incredibly central to all of these novels why does language seem to take such a key role in dystopia yeah that's a very very good point and um uh, the the language and the manipulation of language is is particularly a strong theme in in Orwell, and especially in 1984, um, the the in, in fact in in 1984, it's a brilliant literary technique that Orwell introduces. He he says that the people of, of future England um, they don't speak English anymore; they speak Newspeak, and Newspeak actually has its own dictionary, which the government is constantly changing. And instead of trying to expand the dictionary, which is what you know normal. Uh, a normal society, of course, as as we develop and grow and and have new technologies, the, the dictionary gets bigger every year. In uh, in in Orwell's 1984, the dictionary, the idea is to make it smaller because you want to limit the palette of of words that people have to think with. So you want people speaking in 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 increasingly infantile baby talk version. Uh, you don't want flowery prose or intricate 
you know, beautiful expressions of literature. You want you want uh, life to be like you know reading a memo from uh, from the the boss about you know what kind of stickers you should put on envelopes or something. You know, it's just this sort of utilitarian uh, uh, language. Also, uh, the idea of things being uh, opposites was also a theme in 1984. You know, ignorance is strength, uh, freedom is slavery. This idea of of taking the meaning of words and ascribing opposite or conflicting meanings to them. Again, this is how you control people. You control people by controlling their thoughts. Well, the only way you can really control people's thoughts is to control their language because language is so intrinsic to being human. And that's another brilliant part about Orwell. He understood uh, this, uh, just this importance of language. It's, uh, and, and for us in the, in the Western world, and you know, we're formed by the Christian worldview, you know, who is the center of our entire faith? It's Christ, Christ the Logos, the Word. Um, how does God create the universe? By speaking a word. You know, the idea of the spoken word, of the Logos, of the idea of reason, the idea of expressing reason through language, this is sacred uh, to us Christians, and it is absolutely central to the Western world, to to the idea of freedom and capitalism, of markets, of people exchanging ideas and, and being at liberty. Um, if you're going to control people, you have to control their language. Um, and, and, and in order to do that, you have to dehumanize people because, again, expressing ourselves by means of spoken and written language is absolutely intrinsic to being human. So to crush that spirit or to take it away or to alter it or to control it from above is to, in a real way, to control the soul. And that's ultimately what a totalitarian society wants to do. It wants to reduce each human being to a cog in a machine as part of a larger plan. Not the plan of God, not the will of God, but the will of the state, the will of the dictator, the, um, the planning of the Central Economic Planning Board. You know, each person has his duty to the state and to society to do what he is told to do. And that does not leave room for innovation or for personal choice, or for, you know, the, the doctrine of vocation that we have in Christianity. All that goes out the window, and you are to become a subservient, um, uh, a, a subservient part of a, of a larger machine. It's very dehumanizing, but it's done with language. Um, Ayn Rand has a short story called Anthem, and it's it's based on, of course, um, a, co a collectivist future society that's a totalitarian society where, you know, uh, humanity is reduced to sort of like being a beehive. Everybody has a number. Everybody has some sort of job, some sort of place. It's this dreary, dystopian future world of a, of a socialism uh, that controls each individual. And in, in, in her literary device for this story, I think is brilliant. It's based on the fact that at some point in mankind's distant past, the, um, the, uh, the first person singular pronouns were abolished. So in, in this future world, people can't even express the idea of I or me. Um, the, it, the, the language doesn't exist, so the concept doesn't exist. But what you have is this, this, this discontent, this, this 
this disquietude between what it means to be truly human according to human nature as our created nature, which Ayn Rand didn't believe in God, but she believed in natural law or, or sort of a natural reality of what mankind is like. And we Christians believe this is because of creation. But there's this discrepancy between what man is and what somebody somewhere uh, be it whether it's a, a, a dictator or whether it's a social order, uh, m manipulators of society ha uh, have for us as being, instead of like individual human beings with an individual soul, with an individual mind, with an individual will, being created in God's image and having a vocation as, uh, as a person who is valued by God, instead that all goes away and you're seen as sort of a member of the hive. So, for instance, uh, why would a bee or an ant need a word for I or me? It just, it just really isn't part of their existence. So, again, uh, language is absolutely key, and you'll, and you'll find this. If you read Dystopia, you'll find all of them, to some extent or another, involve uh, linguistic manipulation or control. But Orwell is sort of the king of, of that a particular uh, concept. Kind of jumping off of that... The idea of memory is very tied to language. I mean, you think and you remember things. You you have concepts and words. You know, you were you were talking about that we control how people think by controlling the language, and so so memory would just follow from that. And there's very much this idea that memory is dangerous. And just like language, great pains are taken to disrupt and destroy it. So while language, you know, helps, you know, the control of language controls the mind, why is memory such a threat? Yeah, that's another uh, a great point, and it's another huge theme, particularly in Orwell. Um, if you have a totalitarian state or society, uh, you ca you can't tolerate dissent. All right, you can't have people, for instance, saying, remembering, "Hey, I remember when things used to be good, and now they're terrible under this new system." You can't have that because that leads to people rejecting um, the 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 way things are now, and they might rebel. Um, they might spread this like a poison. You know, what if one person says, hey, you remember how we used to live uh, before the revolution and now, now look at how we live? And then other people say, yeah, I remember that. And then you have people getting together in kitchens and salons and barbershops and, you know, street corners. And, and, then, and then people are going to remember and, and they have a collective memory. So um, to a, a dictator, to a totalitarian society, you have to rewrite the history to always show how much better we are now than we were then. So in other words, when you have any kind of history, and when I say history, I'm including the news, the newspaper. Newspapers, you know, the old days when we had newspapers, you know, that was a long time ago, what, 10, 15 years ago? Um, right, news, right. Yeah, newspapers would record, you know, the history from yesterday, and then they would go into an archive, and then you could research 100 years ago by looking at newspapers. And so now we also have videos, in a sense, uh, YouTube is history. If you see a YouTube video, it shows a 
snapshot of what life was like in 2019. And, you know, 50 years from now, there'll be researchers pouring over these things to learn about the past. Uh, but so, but history and the news in a totalitarian society must become um, state propaganda and they're, they're tightly controlled. What's allowed to be said, what's not allowed to be said. Um, in 1984, Orwell makes use of this literary device called the memory hole, where old news stories weren't sent to an archive. In fact, they were pulled out of the archive if they were inconvenient to the state and they were literally burned. Or um, you had this um, uh, government agency called the Ministry of Truth, ironically called Ministry of Truth, where they created fake news that actually became part of the official record. You had bureaucrats like, uh, like the protagonist in the story, the main character, Winston, who his job was to sort of uh, take news newspapers from the past. It might have been a week ago. It might have been a year ago. And then he would like rewrite the newspapers. He would throw the old ones in the memory hole and the new rewritten stories would go in the archives. And that's all that people knew because it was in the archives. And the only thing that stood in the way of that is memory. You know, someone would say, no, wait a minute. The newspaper is telling us that the the chocolate ration just went up to 25 grams, but I remember last week when the chocolate ration was 30 grams. It didn't go up. It went down. So you have to crush that memory if you can. Um, there's a, there's a, a great line from 1984. I'll, I'm going to read it to you here. Um, he's, he's complaining that um, one could not learn history from architecture any more than one could learn it from books. Statues, inscriptions, memorial stones, the names of streets, anything that might throw light upon the past had been systematically altered. And you know, this is ripped right out of the headlines. We're seeing statues, statues that are being removed either by uh, local governments or state governments or by mobs tearing down statues while police just watch. And, and when people are charged with the crimes, they're, 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 uh, they're thrown out. I mean, we have with impunity, people are tearing down uh, statues that are politically incorrect. Here in uh, New Orleans, they are renaming They've already renamed one street, and they're they're uh, they're renaming thirty-seven street names. Uh, they're renaming schools. They're renaming um, other institutions and parks. It it, it is very Orwellian. Um, you know th things that have been familiar to people in New Orleans, like the Lee Monument at Lee Circle. This was a very important geographical location where you know parades went by, and people have a lot of memories. And this is an iconic piece of people's memory for almost 140 years. And so now they you know they simply pull the statue down. They're going to rename. Um, the, the, the location and, and, and it's and it's just an attempt to rewrite the past and they're just they're open about this. Um, so um, so it, yeah, this assault on memory is an attempt to control what people think. Uh, this is why books are so dangerous in dystopias. I mean think about what is a book? It's an archived record of someone's thoughts, feelings, emotions, um, intellectual observations. These are, these are uh, like a mirror into the past. But you can't have that in a dystopia. You have to control what people see, read, uh, what thoughts are shared across the generations. You know, people might share forbidden memories and, and ask forbidden questions. Um, another another quote from Orwell. This is from the party. This is from the government um, explaining why 
they are doing what they're doing in the ministry of truth and in controlling the news. And, and, it, and the slogan of the government, of the party, is who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. So you can see it's, it's all about control. It's not about simply reporting, okay, this is what happened in the past, and we're going to archive this so that we can reflect upon it in the future. The idea is to take the truth of what actually happened, rewrite the narrative, make that the official remembrance, remove all previous connections to the previous remembrance, and then we will move forward according to the new accepted uh, narrative. So, yeah, the idea of manipulating memory is so very important. And and if you have people, you know, who who say that's that's not what happened. I was there at that battle, or I was there that day, um, or, or I lived before the revolution, and that's not how our institutions worked. Well, you can't have that. So you either you either make it, um, you know, either by by soft peer pressure to make people don't talk about it, or maybe maybe you're memory is faulty, you know, sort of gaslight them into thinking, into changing their memories, or you eliminate them in a concentration camp. But you're right. I mean, memory, memory goes hand in hand with language. I mean, language expresses uh, something at a, at a particular point in time, especially written language or, or film or any kind of archival footage. This, this, this is a, a record of something that happened. And so language and memory are intrinsically connected. And so both of them have to be manipulated by a, you know, a, a dictatorship or a totalitarian state, a dystopian uh, society. You know, I've been pondering which is more pernicious, and maybe they're equally pernicious, whether hard totalitarianism or soft totalitarianism. You know, it it almost seems like with hard totalitarianism, I mean, just the the methods that they use to control they're so overt. They're so very in your face, you know, the, like the example that you brought up, you know, that it's just this overarching everything, you know, the boot stomping on the face, you know, that's, that's just, this is our goal, you know, full, full control. And, and we're going to be very overt. I mean, people knew that if you ended up in the, uh, the Ministry of Love, if I'm remembering <laughs> yeah. correctly, yeah. you know, they knew what what happened, you know, and they they knew that that people just disappeared and they they became erased from history. There was no record of them uh, at all whatsoever. So, it, I'm I'm just trying to to ponder. Which is more evil? And maybe they're equally evil, you know, in terms of the hard totalitarianism versus soft totalitarianism. Maybe maybe hard totalitarianism is just more honest. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, this is a good point. And, and I think this is an example of where reading dystopian novels and reading different ones – um, you, you come to think about, you know, think deeply about these things. This is an important thing to consider because, you know, we, we do live in a country where we still have a lot of freedom. Um, and yet there's still, there, there are elements of both hard and soft totalitarianism. The seeds are certainly there anyway. And, and I think we, right now, I think there is a soft 
uh, totalitarianism going on, particularly in media and Hollywood and in TV shows. I mean, it's there's a bombardment of propaganda. And is it more dangerous for people to be brought along willingly, or is it more dangerous for people to be compelled? Um, I'm reading a book. I'm finishing it up. It's very, very good. It's called It's Only a Joke, Comrade, Humor, Trust, and Everyday Life under Stalin. And this is kind of a scholarly book that looks at um, the way people used humor during the times of Stalin and during the Soviet Union. I mean, the Soviet Union was a hard totalitarianism, you know, and, and, and literally people could tell one joke. You could tell a joke in, 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 your, in your kitchen, and if a neighbor or a family member reported you to the authorities, you could literally disappear at three in the morning and you would be serving seven years in a prison, which was a gulag prison, usually in a very cold part of Siberia. And you might die, you might be tortured, um, you, you would certainly be scarred for life when you got out. And people knew that that could happen to them. But, you know, people were still t still making jokes. They would put graffiti on the wall. They would mock the name of Stalin. You change one letter and his name becomes something really insulting. Um, they would, they would um, you know, uh, sort of t um, hang things off of the Lenin statues. They're risking, you know, life and limb to do these things. But everybody knew. Everybody knew that this was a lie. You know, they, the, the, the people under the Soviet Union, they knew they were under the yoke and they couldn't really fight it. But they, they, they fought it internally in their minds by mocking it. And it's, it, this is really an important thing. But a soft totalitarianism is where the people are convinced to go along with it. And in a sense, they put themselves in a cage. And, and I think that's actually more dangerous because eventually a hard totalitarianism will fall. Um, it's just incongruent with, re with the reality of being a human being. Eventually, you know, the, especially economic central planning never works. Eventually, it all falls apart. And then there will be some counter-revolution. There will be some sort of, you know, look at what happened in the Soviet Union. In, in 70 years, it, it, it at the very end, it completely collapsed. And, and it wasn't a revolution. It was just simply everybody just put their hands in the air and said, you know, this isn't working. You know, Boris Yeltsin came to the United States and saw a, a typical grocery store in the middle of nowhere that had, you know, beautiful uh, produce that people could buy. Meanwhile, his own people were starving and, and, and leading these this dreary life and everybody just sort of said you know what this isn't working let's let's just break up the soviet union and and and, and let's introduce some freedom and see what happens and so um so yeah i think the i think the soft totalitarianism in my opinion i think that's even worse and i think it's more pernicious um i was in a waiting room i, I don't watch television i haven't watched television for i don't know 15 20 years and you know when i do see something on tv it's kind of shocking to me it's like it's like being in a, a different world, um, and and so I was. They had the news on, and people were slavishly watching the TV. I'm trying to read a book, but people are just their eyes are, you know, locked on the television. And in this short little supposedly news, right? I think of it as like Soviet news, like Izvestia, which was means news, but the joke was there's no news in the news, you know, and it was all fear porn. It was 
you know, COVID's going to kill us all. Uh, the Russians are, uh, you know, sending uh, ships somewhere. Uh, the Russians are going to kill us all. And then they had a little fluff piece on uh, the 4th of July on grilling meat, right? This, okay, good. Finally, we're going to talk about something, you know, that's not fear porn. Oh, that's not what it was at all. It was like, well, a lot of people get sick because they don't cook their meat right on the grill. So it was this preachy, you know, hysterical, you know, t- making people scared to go and flip hamburgers on the grill. I mean, we've literally been cooking. Mankind has been cooking for 6,000 years, <laughs> you know, and and everybody's had a 4th of July cookout. People grew up with this, their grandparents, you know, but here we are, we're having these, these newscasters uh, ginning up fear and anxiety, and it's no wonder we, we live in a, a culture. I mean, you know, young people in particular have been poisoned. It's terrible. I, I notice how, look how many young people don't want to drive. Like they're afraid. They're literally afraid. I, I remember when I was 15, 16 years old, everybody wanted just, we, we just lived for that chance of getting a car, getting a driver's license, getting a job so that we could put gas in the car. It represented freedom. We, we, we rode motorcycles. We, you know, we, we just lived for this idea of becoming more free, more autonomous, more independent. But what do we have now is a culture of fear. Young people don't want to drive. They don't want to get a job. They don't want to move out. They, they, this failure to launch, they're living in the mom's basement when they're 40. I mean, it's this, this, spread of antidepressant drugs it's an absolute epidemic and 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 i think this is i think this is a soft totalitarianism you know again one of the advantages of reading dystopia is you can say hey you know maybe this is maybe people are so fearful now maybe our culture is in this radical revolutionary change because of the input that's coming in through these screens i mean you know that certainly was something that the authors of uh Fahrenheit 451, 1984. Uh, This is certainly something that they foresaw. So maybe there's some truth to that. And, um, you know, I think the best thing people can do is to just quit watching the television. You know, read great books instead. Read books. (laughs) Talk to people face to face. Um, You know, remember the past. Read your history. And and don't, uh, you know, don't don't watch the, the fear porn. It's just really horrible. It's been terrible for our society, I think. Well, and in 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 doing that, in rejecting, you know, this constant stream of fear and focusing our attention elsewhere, that gives us the opportunity to to war against this. Right. You know, the things that we see um playing out in dystopia, the control of language, the control of memory, you know, when, when you read, when you have discussions, when you, when you are human, right? You know, when you, uh, when you interact with people, you, you war against these things that seek to control you. You know, if, if you don't turn on the TV, the TV can't control you, right? <laughs> right, exactly. And, and you know, really, um, the, the manipulation of language, we have the power to push back against that because ultimately we still have power over our own words. You know, uh, nothing says that we have to – I mean, I, 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 I get that some people have no choice but to – 
uh, kind of play along if you if you have a job, if you're in the university, whatever. But in your private discourse, in your thoughts, in your mind, in in your discussions with like-minded people, you don't have to use these politically correct terms. You don't have to use made-up pronouns. You can use the pronouns I and me. You know, even if uh, even if we are, are moving on to an Ayn Randian dystopia where individuals are crushed under the heel of collectivism. So, um, you know, just because a name of an ethnic group or a name of a uh, of, of some, you know, some uh, sexual group or something like that, or even, you know, even normal people are now called cisgender. I won't use that word. I won't use any of those words. I'm not cisgender. I'm a normal person. I'm a man. I'm a healthy man who, who is created in the image of God and, and, and understands, you know, that though we are sinful and we do deviate from God's created order, uh, we know what God's created order is. And I won't have my language changed. And, you know, Jordan Peterson was really heroic about this, even in a university setting. So, yeah, we, we have the power to control what language we do use. We have the power to control what books we read, what books we expose our children to. We don't have to be controlled um, by our gatekeepers and lords and masters and rulers. Um, while we still have the freedom to read, to think, to speak, we need to exercise that freedom and not just surrender it like the you know feeble-minded people in Fahrenheit 451 who uh, whose minds just shriveled up because they were being entertained. Uh, so yeah, dystopia serves that function. I think I think it steals our resolve to uh, to really see liberty for what it is, the gift of God that it is, and and to you know strive to preserve it. For our children, our children's children, and and to and to equip them with the skills that they need to become a dissident, if need be, to be to become stubborn about such things as what words we're allowed to use and and so forth. Thank you, Pastor Bean. We will continue our conversation about dystopia and dystopian literature on the next episode of the Wittenberg Hour. The soil of England is fertile. Its climate is good. It is capable of affording food in abundance to an enormously greater number of animals than now inhabit it. This single farm of ours would support a dozen horses, 20 cows, hundreds of sheep, and all of them living in a comfort and a dignity that are now almost beyond our imagining. Why then do we continue in this miserable condition? because nearly the whole of the produce of our labor is stolen from us by human beings. There, comrades, is the answer to all our problems. It is summed up in a single word, man. Man is the only real enemy we have. Remove man from the scene, and the root cause of hunger and overwork is abolished forever. Our book worth reading for episode 57 is George Orwell's Animal Farm. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others.
This is what we learn in Animal Farm. In this classic satire, George Orwell gives us a picture of the Russian Revolution and the animals on Mr. Jones's manor farm are the characters that paint the picture of the revolution for us. But even though this is a satire of the Russian Revolution, there is so much here that is applicable exactly to the times in which we live. As you read Animal Farm, you will certainly find yourself nodding along and saying, oh yeah, yeah, okay, yep, I know exactly what they're talking about. You'll see how the animals represent characters that we hear from and see in our day today. The picture that is painted for the farm animals prior to their decision to overthrow the humans is the idea of democracy, that this is going to save them from the brutality and the oppression of the man. Literally, in Animal Farm, man. But what ends up happening is strict totalitarianism. I can't recommend Animal Farm highly enough. You will find in it phrases that maybe you've heard your whole life and you've always wondered, well, where did that come from? Phrases like the one I quoted, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. That comes from Animal Farm. And so now you know. So give it a read. Animal Farm explains a lot of things, helps you understand perhaps a little bit more deeply the events of the Russian Revolution, and it will certainly help you understand the times in which we live today. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.